We're going to go ahead and start. Good morning. Uh, so it's a real joy uh, to have Malcolm Foley uh, with us this morning and uh, his wife, Desiree Foley. Uh, so Malcolm and Desiree were members here at Trinity uh, for a few years, uh, 2012 to 2015, right, Malcolm? Did I get yes, those sir. dates right? Yes, sir. Uh, so Malcolm was here doing a Master's of Divinity at uh, Yale Divinity School. During that time, he was also a uh, pastoral intern here at Trinity uh, and just a good friend. So uh, he's currently doing his PhD in American history at Baylor University, and what he's going to be teaching on this morning is going to be sharing some of what he's been uh, working on and researching and studying and writing about at Baylor. Uh, so I'm going to get out of the way and let Malcolm take over. So Malcolm, thanks for being here, brother. We're glad, glad to have you here. Let me open us in a word of prayer, uh, and we'll start. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we get to be your people. Uh, to gather around your word, to gather in your spirit, uh, to gather around our Savior Christ. God, would you bless uh, this time, this morning, as we look um, at a dark moment uh, in our history, and as we look to you, Lord Jesus, in the gospel, for how we might live faithfully uh, in response. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. So it's an it's an it's an honor to be before you this morning, but it's also but it's also sobering, because our material this morning is grim. What you're going to hear is some of the worst that humanity has to offer. And one historian has noted that anyone who does lynching research must have a strong emotional constitution because such work erodes one's faith in humanity. Well, I want to start off this class by affirming wholeheartedly that my faith does not lie in humanity. Because if it did, I would have given up a long time ago. No, my hope remains in a God who reached down to save a sinful humanity. A God, a, a God who, while we were yet sinners, sent his son to die for us. But it's that same God, however, who has continued to guide and care for his people in the midst of brutal evils. And particularly the African American church is, is an excellent example of that. And I'm also firmly of the opinion that evil is not defeated when we look away from it. As Christ's death and resurrection were the most successful full frontal assault on sin that this world has ever known, so also we as those united to that same Christ and as partakers of that same Holy Spirit must look evil in the face, determine its root, and pluck it out. So we're going to stare evil in the face this morning and take a look at some of the ways that some pastors responded to that evil. So first of all, what is a lynching? In short, it's come to mean extra-legal killing of an individual at the hands of a mob. But what we're talking about in American history, after the late 1880s, is what the Equal Justice Initiative rightly calls racial terror lynchings. To understand that, I want to turn to a particular one. And so we're going to begin on the evening of June 21st, 1903, in Wilmington, Delaware, in the sanctuary of the Olivet Presbyterian Church. A black man, George White, has just been accused of raping and murdering a white woman named Helen Bishop, and he has been arrested, currently sitting in jail, being held without bail. Pastor Robert Elwood, for this night's sermon, chose 1 Corinthians 5.13 for his text, which reads, Therefore put away from among ourselves that wicked person, referring to the guy who's having sex with his stepmom. Here's a bit of that sermon. O honorable judges, call the court. Have a speedy trial, establish a precedent, and the girls of this state, the wives of our home, and the mothers of our fireside, and our beloved sisters will not be sorry, and neither will you. 
And honorable judges, if you do not hear and heed these appeals, and that prisoner should be taken out and lynched, then let me say to you, with a full realization of the responsibility of my words, even as Nathan said to King David of old, after his soldiers had killed Uriah, thou art the man, so I would say to you, the responsibility for lynching would be yours for delaying the execution of the law. If the judges insist that the trial of the murderer of Miss Bishop be delayed until September, then should he be lynched? I say yes. Miss Bishop's father was also a pastor, and he responded with an open letter to the town asking that they not, quote, try to atone for one crime, no matter how hellish, by committing another, imploring the town to let the law take its course. But the matter was out of his hands. The, the night of June 23rd, two days later, a crowd of several hundred approached the jail, demanding admittance. The guards fought them off with water hoses, but they would not be deterred. As they beat upon the iron doors, the chief of police yelled, the first man that comes into this corridor will be killed. The leader of the mob responded with a sledgehammer in hand, then you had better kill me for the first one. They breached the jail and approached the cell, and as they approached the cell, yells were heard from the crowd saying, don't hurt him, hang him. Don't hit him, burn him, burn him at the stake. Take him to the place where he murdered Miss Bishop, for we have driven a stake there and will burn him. They took him out of the jail and brought him to a secluded spot. There he was bound in ropes from his shoulders to his feet, was affixed to the stake under which there was a pile of straw, and the torch was applied to the straw. Newspapers tell us this. The flames leaped up and licked the man's bare hands. He was held erect by one of the lynchers until his clothing was burning when he, when he was pushed into, into the bed of the fire. He rolled about and his contortions were terrible, but, but he made no sound. Suddenly the ropes on his legs parted and he sprang from the fire and started to run. And a man hit him with a piece of fence rail and knocked him down as willing hands threw him again into the flames. He rolled out a few times and each time they pushed him back in, shouting and cheering. There are two things that one must understand about this story. First, it's not, it's not anomalous in its broad strokes. Between the end of Reconstruction in 1877 and 1950, more than 4,000 black men, women, and children were killed by white mobs. When people think about lynching, they generally think about the rope and hanging. But the story of lynching is a story of castration, mutilation, and perhaps most disturbingly, burning people alive. Perhaps even more disturbingly than that, as illustrated by this story that I've just told, there were white pastors who advocated for such things, suggesting that torturing and burning a human being alive was an act of divinely sanctioned justice. I jest with my colleagues that if my research focused on white pastors during this period, I would actually be depressed. After all, the material is dark enough. To compound a profoundly unjust distortion of the gospel, on top of that, is to witness some of the worst of humanity. But thankfully, those were not the only voices in this conversation. Many have fallen into the trap of believing that lynching actually worked, that it actually cowed particularly black churches into silence because of fear. But that is not true. 
black pastors did indeed speak out, and that's actually the focus of my research. So I'm going to lay out a few, uh, a few, a few examples of these, of these responses, and then we'll think through kind of what that means for the church today. So the first of these responses uh, comes as a response to that lynching that I just narrated. Comes from an AME pastor who got national recognition because of the sermon that he preached soon after this lynching. Hear the words of Reverend Montrose W. Thornton. With a court, law, and officers of law in the white man's hands, the despised Negro can expect no mercy, justice, or protection. The Negro is unsafe anywhere in this country. He is, the, he is the open prey at all times of barbarians who know no restraint and will not be restrained. There is but one part left for the persecuted Negro when charged with a crime and when innocent. Be a law unto yourself. You are taught by this lesson of outrage to save yourself from torture at the hands of the blood-seeking public. Save your race from insult and shame. Be your own sheriff, court, and jury. And here's the, here's the kicker. Die in your tracks, perhaps drinking the blood of your pursuers. Yes, you heard that correctly. Die in your tracks, perhaps drinking the blood of your pursuers. If a lynch mob is after you and you're innocent, you won't survive. So, what Pastor Thornton tells his congregation is, take as many with you as you can. And don't be surprised by that, because when, when one lives in a culture where one's life is constantly in danger, when someone could be killed merely for being accused of a crime, or for being related to or near someone who's been accused of a crime, one way to affirm, one way to affirm your dignity as a human being, and this is one of the things that, that, that pastors were kind of figuring out how to do, one of the ways to affirm your dignity as a human being is to advocate for armed self-defense. This is, this is one of the options. And if anyone would appear to be entirely justified in pitching self-defense as an option, it must be a community that's faced with with the prospect of unjust death on all sides. Like David Walker, the abolitionist in the early 19th century, and Malcolm X after him, Thornton encouraged black communities not to accept the predominance of domestic terrorism in American society. But self-defense was not the only option provided in African-American theological and political thought. In 1899, a lynching took place that, in many ways, changed the future of African-American intellectual history. Sam Hose, accused of raping a white woman when what really happened was that he killed his employer in self-defense after, he, after his employer came at him with a gun because he asked for back pay that he was owed and because he asked for time off to help his ailing mother. Those, those requests made... those. Those requests were essentially an insult to his employer, for, for, for him to say that his employer owed him something. It's an insult, punishable by death. So, the, so, so, so he was caught by a mob, they cut off his ears and fingers, castrated him, chained him to a tree, doused him in kerosene, and burned him alive. And as the fire began to die, trains from, this, is, uh, uh, this happens in, around noon in Georgia, as the fires begin to die, trains come in from Atlanta, and, th- and more than 2,000 more people come in to look through the ashes for charred bones and body parts, taking pieces of the chain that bound him, taking pieces of the tree to which he was chained, all to take souvenirs. And an afternoon soon after that, within two days, W.B. Du Bois was on his way to see Joel Chandler Harris, a a prominent author, and to see an editor of the prominent newspaper, the Atlanta Constitution. 
because he heard that this lynching was about to happen. Before he got to that office, he learned that Hose had already been, quote, barbecued, and that his knuckles were for sale in a grocer's window a few blocks ahead. Later, thinking back on this moment, he wrote, I did not meet Joel Chandler Harris, nor the editor of the Constitution, but walked home in a distracted state of mind, realizing that one could not be a calm, cool, and detached scientist while Negroes were, while Negroes were being lynched, murdered, and starved. W.B. Du Bois, the activist, perhaps the most prominent black intellectual of the early 20th century, was essentially born on that day. And he would go on to be instrumental in the founding of the NAACP, which would eventually mount significant anti-lynching campaigns. But that day shocked more than just W.B. Du Bois. It also shocked a pastor, who also ended up being one of the co-founders of the NAACP, whose name was Francis Grimke. Grimke was the nephew of Angelina and Sarah Grimke, the well-known northern abolitionists and early advocates for, advocates for, for women's rights. A few weeks after Hose's lynching, Grimke preached three sermons on lynching to the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., with the mob killing of Stephen as his text for Max. In summary, Francis Grimke's three sermons focus on lynching's causes and its remedies. Because these sermons are a revelation of lynching's true nature and an affirmation of black humanity. Like Ida B. Wells, the single most important human being in the history of anti-lynching activism, Grimke recognized that the narrative that was offered by Southern apologists was a false one. So lynching as a, lynching as a, as a, as a phenomenon, but if you look before, uh, before, the, before the 1860s, well, really before the 1880s, it affected white and black populations in almost comparable numbers. But in the late 1880s, the number of white people being lynched drops and the number of black people being lynched skyrockets. Why might that be the case? Well, it's a culmination of a trend that begins immediately after the end of Reconstruction, a trend called, called redemption, when white Southerners take back political power over the South. And so when Southern whites were asked why black men were lynched across the South, the answer that they gave was consistent. And the answer was this. Well, it's because black men rape white women. After Sam Hose was burned alive in, in 1899, a note was left on a tree near his corpse that said, we must protect our southern women. Grimke, however, and others were not convinced. Looking at the statistics and also not buying the narrative because it's, ridiculous in con because it, because it's a ridiculous claim to make, Grimke, like Wells before him, found that people were lynched because they broke the codes of Jim Crow. Yes, some were accused of rape. Some were accused of rape some, some were accused of rape because they were in a consensual relationship with a white woman. But when, but, but, when they, but when they were found out, they were accused of rape. Some were accused of rape because they bumped the shoulder of a white woman. Some were accused because they looked at a white woman. Some were accused of rape as an afterthought to whip up a crowd with no evidence at all. As a response, Grimke was clear in his sermon saying, It is all accepted as true. And insofar as it is accepted, the North as well as the church is guilty of condemning the Negro upon charges which have never been substantiated according to the method of civilized society. The alleged Negro rapist is entitled to a fair trial, and until he has, until, until he has had that trial, to kill, him in a, to kill him is a flagrant injustice, a monstrous wrong. Never ought we to accept the verdict of a mob against any man, white or black. The reasons for lynching were instead clear to Grimke. 
He affirmed that lynching's primary purpose was not justice, it was order. And order in the minds of white communities was keeping black communities in their place. And so what did Grimke think was the remedy to this, situa- to, to this way of thinking? Grimke's answer, which was one among, any, uh, among, among many, including self-defense and others, but what he said was education, social, political, moral, and religious. So what Grimke called for was an educational campaign that was both destructive and constructive, destroying the edifice of white supremacy and constructing a framework that allowed full civic participation for African Americans. This educational campaign would have to systematically dismantle the assumptions that black people were voiceless chattel, only valued for their worth to the economic system. In his words, the southern white man needs to be educated into a recognition of the fact of the Negro's manhood, or humanity, into the habit of thinking of the Negro as a human being, and not as some lower form of existence that puts him beyond the ordinary civilities of life. As, as people had been educated to think that black people were inferior, so they had to be educated in, in, in African-American humanity, apparently. But who was to do this work? Grimke began with the explicit belief that anti-lynching work had to begin in the church. In fact, in Grimke's mind, one ought to expect to look to ministers of the gospel, because they're supposed to be God's representatives fighting for justice and common humanity. If anyone ought to be on the front lines, and if anyone had the resources to actually justify their presence on the front lines, it had to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grimke laid out ample scriptural evidence for racial equality in in the sense that conceptions of race as set forth by southern whites to affirm their own superiority, and this is southern and, and northern, they're rooted in falsehood. Rightly, Grimke pointed to such verses as Acts 17.26 and Genesis 1.26 and 27, noting that all human beings are descended from Adam and thus created in the image of God. As a result, he says this, there isn't a hint or suggestion or anything that could in any way be twisted into even so much as the semblance of an argument in support of the belief that some races were created superior to others, in the sense in which that term is used by the Southern whites in dealing with the race question. For Grimke, that, along with the fact that everyone is held to the same standard in the Ten Commandments and the fact that the gospel is preached to all indiscriminately, solves the problem of ontological inferiority, that is, inferiority in terms of being. And Grimke was optimistic about the possible success of his project, saying, let the ministers and elders and deacons and members, those who have come out from the world and have taken upon themselves the name of Jesus, first get right themselves on this subject. Let them accord to the Negro his rights as a citizen. Let them treat him as he ought to be treated as a man and brother, as is required by God's most holy law, which they profess to believe and to follow, and it will not be difficult to get those on the outside to fall in line. The church is in in a position to wield a tremendous influence in this matter if it will only arouse itself to a sense of its responsibilities and will have the courage to do what it knows to be right. Now, this was an honorable goal and an honorable sentiment, but it was not, it was not enough. While it, while it combats the racialization of lynching, that is or, or, or what I narrated before of the shift to, um, to, to black people being lynched in, in, in large numbers, it didn't deal with the moral narrative behind it. Because someone can believe that, he, that African Americans are, are human and still think that they're morally degraded and that they particularly need to be kept in line. So you're not, 
essentially actively a member of the lynch mob, but racist ideology is still present. And so one way to do this, one way to combat this was to draw on another core Christian claim, that sin is a universally corrupting phenomenon. While human beings, by means of our creation, and, 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 and thus our, our, our participation in God insofar as we exist, we have, we have dignity as a result of that. But our sin places us in a place of concurrent guilt. And so in such a situation, justice, insofar as we're able to enact it, appears proximate in most, co- in most cases, because we, ha- we, we inevitably have cases of corrupt human beings attempting to form institutions and laws to judge other corrupt human beings. But in the case of lynching, the seeming guiltlessness of the lynchers revealed that such a conception was foreign. For them, only the black person was guilty, and only the black person could be guilty. As white male protectors of southern female virtue, what did they have to be ashamed of? It took the testimony of African-American activists, pastors, and poets to continue to affirm the humanity of black people, as well as to remind white folks of their own depravity. And it was precisely this second move that Ida B. Wells and, and, and other pastors later would attempt to put to the forefront as they described the brutality of lynching and exposed the nation to the circulating postcards and photographs of charred victims. What you see in this map, what you see in this map behind you, and this is and this is only a portion, this is only a portion of the map. Um, these are all of the recorded lynchings from 1835 to 1964. They're color coded. They're color coded racially. Um, if you, if we were to zoom into zoom into southern Texas, we would see uh, just a number of uh, a number of Mexicans being lynched. But this is this is just the look at the deep south. This extends this extends northern. But every but every single one of these every single one of these dots is a skull. Because every single one of these dots is an African-American man, woman, or child killed, killed by mob violence. And there are thousands of these. This is, this is from MonroeWorkToday.org. But these are just, these are just, the, these are just the recorded ones in, in newspapers. Count, countless others went, 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 or, or went unreported. But you can see, but, you, but this is, but this is just, a, just a visual representation of how widespread this phenomenon was. And so I want to take a I want to take a quick uh, a quick look at the work of Ida of, of Ida B. Wells. Um, because Desiree messes with me about, about Ida B. Wells because she's basically the hero of my research and I talk about her all the time and it's generally not a good practice to gush about other women in the fit of your wife. But I assure her that she's no longer living so she's not a threat. Um, <laughs> But the reason I talk about her is that, is that her, her courage and resilience in the face of a lynching culture is astonishing. Wells was a journalist, and at the time of, at the time of what I call her, her awakening in 1890, uh, she was editor and part owner of the Memphis Free Speech newspaper, a significant achievement in itself. But when she heard that three men, one of whom was her friend, had been lynched in Memphis, she was surprised. After all, she, like many others, was under the impression that lynching only happened for rape. But she knew these guys. She, she, she knew that they, that they couldn't have been accused of rape. As she investigated this case, she found that they had been lynched because their grocery store was in competition with, with the white one across the street. And when they defended themselves against an attack, they shot at and inadvertently wounded police officers. And when she, and when she, and when she wrote about this, the response was... Uh, not positive. 
People burned down the paper that she submitted to and threatened to lynch her, so she ran to the north, where she lived for the rest of her life. But she still constantly visited the south to investigate these lynchings. For the, in the case of the one in Memphis, this was, this was a lynching that took, that took place because these three men posed an economic threat. And as she and and through her national and international anti-lynching campaigns, she popularized the truth about lynching, convincing both Frederick Douglass and W. B. Du Bois of this of this fact, that lynching was a tool of racial terror meant to keep black people in their place of economic and racial inferiority. She brought attention to the fact that what made the narrative of the black beast rapist so compelling was that people believed these stories about all white women, all white men, all black men, and all black women. All white women were paragons of virtue who would never dare to enter into a relationship with a black man. All white men were defenders of virtue justified in using lethal force to defend white women. All black women were salacious Jezebels, and black men were inhuman demons ready to prey upon unsuspecting girls. The complexity of humanity was smoothed and ignored in the face of the need to maintain white supremacy. And Wells' insight was amazing, and her, and, and her courage to speak not only here, but abroad, as a black woman in the beginning of the 20th century, is mind-bogglingly heroic. But... There's a sense in which even this move backfired because it wasn't paired with a cohesive theological or ethical narrative. So lynching didn't end. It merely went underground for a while because public, brutal execution of allegedly criminal African Americans no longer had widespread public approval. And so lynching fades, lynching starts to fade in the background in the 30s and 40s, though you still have high-profile lynchings that continue in the decades to come, uh, including the lynching of, of Emmett Till, which ended up sparking, uh, sparking the civil rights movement, uh, even though recently uh, the woman who accused, uh, the woman who accused uh, Emmett Till of, of whistling at her and, call, and calling her baby, within the last year she said that she lied about that. Violence moves, so after lynching fades in, the, it, it fades in the 30s and 40s, violence moves into the urban centers where African Americans who had fled lynching in the South gathered. So one of the reasons for the great, one of the reasons for the great migration for six million African Americans moving out of the South into the North was not, just oppor- was not just economic opportunity in the North, but also fleeing lynching. And so they flee to these, they flee to these urban centers, and, th- and then you start seeing cases of, of people's houses being bombed and stuff in these cities because the violence has just moved, the, an- the, a- the anti-black violence has just moved with them. And so violence moved into the prison system in what some call legal lynchings from capital punishment. Violence moved into the system of mass incarceration and attendant police brutality, the effects of which we live in today when this country has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. In a fashion that is truly demonic, racial violence has proven to be exceptionally resilient, addressed perhaps in one form, but always ready to reemerge in another. As Jamar Tisby has said in his recent book, racism doesn't go away, it adapts. Now, I can't give you all the answers because I have to leave you in a little suspense for the book that's going to come out in a few years. But, um, but, but, but such a project ha- must be informed by a historical understanding of past attempts to battle lynching and racial violence in general. We have to continue to ask the question, why did Ida B. Wells utter this chilling declaration? 
that American Christians are too busy saving the souls of white Christians from burning in hellfire to save the lives of black ones from present burning in fires kindled by white Christians. We must ask, are we truly working against all suffering, especially eternal suffering? Are we saying to our brothers and sisters, go and be well fed, instead of actually literally feeding them when they need food? So what does this mean for the church today? We have to remember that the world that we live in today, the communities that we live in, work in, buy or rent houses in, have been profoundly shaped by American history. Segregation and its cohabitant racial violence are not southern phenomena. In many cases, the segregation in the north was more entrenched and more difficult to extricate than that of the south. This can be seen in the ministries of, of, of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, often contrasted with, with one another because of their methods. But it's important to remember that Malcolm almost exclusively addressed particular issues that the North faced, where Jim Crow was not explicit, but rather was subtly enforced. And when Martin Luther King attempted to use the same methods that he used in the South in Chicago in 1966, he found that the issues were actually much more complex. Economic exploitation of black communities took on a different face. No longer was it these legal forms of segregation, but it looked, at, it looked like racial housing covenants. It looked like corrupt landlords, racist hiring practices, and the like. And as a matter of fact, when he demonstrated in Chicago in, eight, it, it, in August 1966, marching through an all-white neighborhood, bottles and bricks were thrown at the demonstrators, and King himself was struck by a rock. And afterwards, he said, I have seen many demonstrations in the South, but I have never seen anything so hostile and so hateful as I've seen here today. All this is to say this. If, if, we're serious about, if we're serious about seeking racial justice as an individual and as a church, it, it's important to know the history of your local area. Are there profound racial disparities in housing, poverty, and school performance, for example? Press into them. Because chances are, you won't like what you see, but this is the first step to seeking to be an agent of the gospel. And that's, not, and that's not me kind of making some addition to the gospel. Christ has given us two commandments, and he's given us his spirit in order that we might be obedient to those commandments. Love, you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then in John 15, Jesus, Jesus then extends that second commandment and, and, and says that, and says, and when he's talking about loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, when he says to love one another as I have loved you. It's impossible to love someone if you do not know them, if you do not laugh with them, if you do not mourn with them. If you watch the Netflix series, uh, when, they, when They See Us, you'll see a, a horrific story about the Central Park jogger case in 1989 where five teenage black and Latino boys between 14 and 16 are arrested and convicted for rape and sent to prison. You will see the interrogations where their confessions are forced. You will see the actual rapist meet one of the boys in jail 13 years later and him actually confessing to the crime, showing that in this case, the actual rapist in this case ended up having more mercy on these boys than the system that claimed to protect them and society. Do you wish to train your mourning muscles? Know that this is a reality faced by many, especially black and brown men in this country. Unfortunately, being convicted of a crime doesn't always mean that one is guilty. And there's an uncomfortable amount of data about the, about, about, about this, about the innocent suffering. And so practically, what does that mean? Well, one thing is take, take jury duty seriously. Meet your neighbors, learn their pains, pray for them. In your workplace, don't let injustice run rampant. 
If you're afraid for your job, remember, the Lord is on your side. In Christ's Sermon on the Plain, he speaks Beatitudes similar to Matthew 5, but not exactly the same. And Luke, he encourages us, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. I submit to you that fighting for the good of your neighbor, fighting for the benefit of your neighbor, fighting for the life of your neighbor is an action that God has promised to vindicate. And so how does the gospel of Jesus Christ teach us to respond to the persistent evils of racism, injustice, and violence? I want to uh, take the tack that uh, Paul normally does in his, in, in, his, in his letters, in moving from the indicative to the imperative. If, if, we, have been, if we have been set free by Christ, by Christ, if we have been set free by Christ, that enables, us to, that enables us to love and forgive our neighbor in ways that no one else is able to do. And so, and, so, and so this then has to guide, I think, our interpretation of Romans 13, which is often used as a, um, as a text to support political quietism. Let everyone be subject to the ruling authorities and things like that. We have to recognize that if we live in a federal republic as we do, we actually make up part of that governing authority body, which means that our responsibility then is to use that power well. And so then, this is a call to think through what just political action looks like. And this is something that we constantly need guidance for because it, 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 re- it requires an understanding of history, it, under- it, it requires an understanding of these, of these local issues, but, th- but that's not, but it's not an option because we have this power and it, and, and it, will, either, it will either lie unused in the sense of burying a talent or it can be used for the actual benefit of our brothers and sisters and neighbors. But the second thing, um, and I'm very glad that John Owen's Mortification of Sin is on the bookshelf because it's one of my favorite, it's just one of my favorite books on, on sanctification. But, one of the things that he emphasizes in that book is the need to is the need to put sin to death. But the only way that we act, the only way that we actually engage in this in this activity daily is to recognize that sin is killing us. And one of the phrases uh, one of the phrases from that from that book is be about be be about killing sin or sin will be about killing you. Racist ideology functions in a very, it's, 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 it's in this, it's, it's, it, f- it functions the way that sin does. Because what, what racist ideology is a mixture of pride and greed in this kind of toxic soup. And so if this is something that we're seeking to fight, like I said, as individuals and as a church, it has to be something that needs, it, it has to be something that we recognize needs to be put to death. Not played around with. Not treated as though uh, not 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 treated as though it's a light issue, because people people have died and people continue to die as a result of the belief that certain groups of people are inferior to others, whether morally, intellectually, physically, spiritually, or any other or 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 or, or any other category like that. And so, while while fewer fires may be kindled in today's America. The same work is done whenever full human dignity is is denied to anyone. And so memory of these events and the current application of that knowledge personally 
in teaching and preaching and loving our communities has to be informed especially by the range of African-American thought on these topics. Because if not, we may be doomed to repeat in insidious ways the evils of our past. Are there any questions? I want to leave some time. Because this, this is not a... How many of you have how, how, how many of you have, have encountered uh, lynching history before? Lynching history? Yeah. So just the, the, so this writing like, about yeah, it, yeah, reading about, about it, it, hearing about it. Okay, yeah, yeah. Since yeah. the sixties. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 a uh, <laughs> so like the, the the scholarship on it has been um, uh, is like the last forty years uh, a fair amount has happened, but. There's, but no one has done. Uh, so what? So what? Uh, so what my dissertation focuses on is specifically Black Protestant responses to lynching. How do you how do you encourage your congregation in the midst of a in the midst of a society that seems to be poised for their death at all points? And so what the dissertation is doing is it uh, it maps the it maps the range ranging from pray about it and, and, and it'll go away to self defense and there are and there are a bunch of spots in between. But 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 the main purpose of that is to is to is to remind people that uh, this practice doesn't doesn't continue because no one's saying anything about it. It continues because no one's listening to the people who are actually saying things about it. Any and all questions. How old was Wells when in eighteen ninety? How 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 old was she? Yeah. Uh, in her late twenties. Yes, she was. She was born in. She was born in sixty one, I believe. So about to about to, about to turn thirty. Her her most famous um, her most famous editorials uh, come out in uh, well in ninety two is when is when um, Southern Horrors comes out. Uh, she has she has two uh, kind of most famous editorials: um, Southern Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in, uh, in all its phases, and a Red Record. Um, I I. Eagerly, uh, eagerly recommend those texts for an introduction to this to this history. Um, she, she's brilliant. Born in slavery. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like as a as a child, but 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 soon after her parents are you know soon soon after her parents are free because she's born during the during the Civil War. Yes. Did a lot of Christians use that? Um, I don't know the exact scripture, but I know see Genesis is like the. With Noah, the son of Shem. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was black. He was black or dark. Yeah, or like yeah. That. Okay, good, good, good. So the so the curse of Ham, uh, the curse of Ham was common not just in uh, not just in white churches but also in uh, in black churches. Black church uh, uh, African American Christians would would refer to themselves as uh, as sons of Ham, but uh, but they would do so. Um, but 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 so this is so this is its own this is its own conversation of how of how. First of all, how the curse of Ham uh, gets to be interpreted as a curse on Ham when the text is a curse on Canaan. The curse of Ham is 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 used as a, is used as a narrative to justify African slavery. Like that's that's essentially that's essentially what it's used as. There's nothing in the text to suggest that, but um, but it's used but it's used that way. Uh, actually, even even beginning in the 16th century, my uh, well, a professor who was. Who was my advisor for a little while uh, when I was doing work on uh, Calvin and the Puritans? 
Um, he wrote a book on um, on the Curse of Ham as you know as a as a developing uh, uh, as a developing doctrine of of, of justification of, of American slavery. But it's it's an it's an unfounded uh, it's an unfounded uh, uh, scriptural interpretation that's essentially used to justify an already an already continuing practice. Yeah. It's like some people use the scriptures to or Christians use it to persecute Jews and there's no scriptures that tell us that you know we're we're to persecute Jews. Yeah. I mean one 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 point so this is so this is this is this is this is a point that I'll that that I'll add because it's all a little bit of time. This is this is this is a very important point. And probably one of the most one of the most important things that I've learned about uh, the way that racism functions in, in, in American society. So we tend to think that, uh, that, that things move from ignorance and hate to racist ideas to racist practices. It's one of the reasons why none of us like to be called racist, because it's, cause it's, cause it's paired with this ignorance and hate. And so we think, oh, no, I'm not racist. I'm not ignorant and hateful. Yes, we are. <laughs> but... When you look at when you look at particularly American particularly American history, but this 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 bleeds into other countries as well, the order historically actually tends to go from policies that disproportionately disadvantage particular populations to ideas that then justify those practices, which then become calcified into ignorance and hate. For example, American slavery. When the Portuguese arrive in Africa. They don't initially, they, the, the initial thought is not, these people are inferior, let's enslave them. The initial thought is, hey, this could make us a whole lot of money. Let's try this. And then they think, hold on, I need to justify this to the Pope somehow. So let's say that this is, we're doing this to Christianize the heathen. Yeah, let's do that. That'll work. So this continues for a while. But then you have to think of other reasons. Because it starts to become clear that, Actually, the goal is not Christianizing the heathen. Actually, the goal is just for you to make money. And so, and so then you have to think of other things. You have to think of things like, oh, um, they're built for slavery. They're inferior to us. We need to civilize them. So we ought to enslave them. They ought to be enslaved. These, these kinds of ideas start to, start to proliferate. And these, and these ideas start to, start to build a life of their own apart from the fact that these were built to justify a particular practice. And so then, that, so then these thoughts of black people being inferior and things like that, that just starts to calcify. And people just think, oh, this is just, it's just common sense. These are just things that we just know to be true. And you can, and you can trace this with a number of particularly uh, uh, racist, racist policies in our, in our history. But that changes, the way that, we, that changes the way that we address it. If we recognize that these things begin fundamentally in self-interest, because that's where all these things begun. Greed, self-interest, and things like that. Then we can start asking the question, okay, this isn't just an, edu- like, it's, it's not an education problem. It's just that we're evil. And so we have to deal with, so we have to, so we have to deal with it in that, we have to, we have to deal with it in those, in those terms. Um, and so when we see, when we, when we, when we, when we see disparities and we blame, uh, we blame entire groups of people for those for those things. We have to think carefully about what we're saying when we say those kinds of things, um, because because the fact of the matter is is if if, if we're to be um, if we're to be ambassadors of the gospel, our goal is to figure out how to how to wisely love our neighbors uh, and blaming entire groups of <laughs> blaming entire groups of people for things that are not for things that are not their fault is unhelpful.
Yeah, John. Thanks so much. Upstairs, we've been going through Nehemiah. Yeah. And uh, when Nehemiah was the news point, yeah. of this terrible, terrible situation, um, it seemed like there was a pattern where he first, rather than simply acting, yep. though he was an actor, yep. uh, he stopped and he mourned. He mourns, yeah. Uh, then he confessed. And confesses, he not yeah. only confessed personally, but also corporately for yep. his people. Yep. Then he prayed and really reflected, and then he acted. Does yep. that seem like a helpful pattern? To Absolutely does, John. How would you Absolutely know? does, John. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely does, John. This is this is not the kind of this is not the kind of work that you can engage in without without initially because it's the the morning <laughs> the morning and praying and confessing. Gets you gets you in the proper posture to be able to engage in this kind of in this kind of work. This is not a this is this this is not a rush in and save situation. This is a we have to we have to be working alongside our brothers and sisters and neighbors, learning alongside them to figure out. Okay, this is how deep these wounds are. How can I come alongside you in these in these wounds? That requires that requires sitting with people. It requires mourning. It requires prayer. It requires confession. From all of us, this is not this is not something that if if you were born and if you were if you born if you were born and grew up or have spent any significant period period of time in this country, you've been shaped in some way by this shaped in some way by this by this culture, um, and so that that those those kinds of practices are are necessary preparatory they're necessary preparatory actions um, before even before even thinking about. Um, you know, before even thinking about moving forward, those are those are, I think, important initial steps. I don't want to take up too much more time. I'll be I'll be I'll be available though. Um, but I want to but, but I want to make sure that we have time for worship. I, I, I want to pray for us. Let me uh, let me pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to gather in your name, Lord, to worship you, uh, to gather with our brothers and sisters and lift up your and lift up your name, uh, Lord. Even as we hear of. I, even as we hear of seemingly insurmountable evils, Lord, uh, not only in history, Lord, but in our in our world today, Lord, I pray that we would constantly be reminded that we serve an actually insurmountable God, Lord, that you that you that that that, that you have shown that you have shown your love for us in Christ, that you've shown, Lord, the, 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 your your forgiveness for us in Christ, that you see, that you've shown, uh, Lord, the, the 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 fact that you wish for us to be conformed to the image of your Son in the gift of your Holy Spirit, and so, Lord, I pray that I pray that as we continue to seek to live the to live the Christian life, um, Lord, that we would that we would do so that we would do so humbly, Lord, that if we as we as we look at these seemingly insurmountable issues of 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 particularly racial justice, but this extends to other realms, Lord, that we would not be that we would not be discouraged, or that we would not fall into despair, uh, but Lord, that we would continue to lean in to lean into you, uh, Lord, the resources that you've given us in your Word, Lord, in prayer, in your Spirit, uh, and in the community of faith. Lord, we thank you for the many ways that you continue to bless us by your grace and your mercy, and Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen.